Hi there. Welcome to OTs Get Paid, the podcast for OT entrepreneurs, where we learn about everything you need to know to move from thinking like a therapist to acting like a CEO and making good money along the way. Are you curious how to continue to be true to your mission of helping others as an OT and get paid what you're worth? Do you want to know the best tips that add zeros to your bank account? Do you wonder how other OTs do it too? I'm your host, Trish Williams, a Canadian, a mom, a not-so-closet choir nerd, an occupational therapist of over 26 years. I spent most of those years loving my profession, but secretly wishing I could get paid a lot more. Did I feel like I had an important job that had great impact on my clients and society? Check. Did I also wish I could feel validation in that work through getting paid enough to feel financial freedom? Check, check. So finally in my 40s, as a single mom who needed to get real with my income, I built two six-figure businesses including my latest as an OT entrepreneur coach at Trish Williams Consulting. And through this, I heard the secret shame that others felt the same way too. So I'm raising my voice and raising my profile of this issue and probably raising my prices. I'm here to talk about OTs making money. So let's do like Scrooge McDuck and dive into those giant piles of gold coins and get swimming and start this episode. Welcome, OT entrepreneurs, to the OT's Get Paid podcast. Today, we are talking about marketing and selling insurance-based versus private pay therapy. Let me start with a story. Once upon a time, not too long ago, I had a client who was looking at branching out into getting some private pay clients. This OT entrepreneur owns a very large therapy company with many team members and staff and many, 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 many clients and has been operating for years on an insurance-based model. One of the reasons she came to me was because she hit a ceiling and she felt that she didn't want to hire more and more and more people and have larger and larger and larger teams. And yet her goal was to crack the seven-figure ceiling. She was managing everybody, doing all of the things, and just couldn't break into that next level. Does that sound familiar to any of you? She had multiple different programs and was even starting to build a nonprofit. So her question to me was, Trish, I really want to get some private pay clients. How do we market to a new private pay audience? And my question back to her was, how do we actually sell private pay clients? How do we actually sell private pay to the clients you already have calling? Because the phone was ringing off the hook. Turning leads into customers wasn't a challenge for her. So what we wound up doing was we reviewed her sales call process. She was the one who was still taking sales calls. I tell you, she was doing all of the things. And we found out that she wasn't proposing private pay at all. And in fact, the way she was doing an intake call or a sales call didn't 
have any openings for discussing possible private pay options. So it turns out it wasn't really a marketing problem. It was more of a sales problem. You know, that's one of my favorite things to do is to make sure we ask the right question, boil it down from like, oh no, marketing, we have to do all of the things to like, what's the one thing you can change here? And it was indeed a sales issue. And by the end of the week, my client had two private pay clients. And by the way, her goal was to get two by the end of the month. Hooray! What a success story. And it doesn't stop there. Because I am a very typical occupational therapist and a lifelong learner, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. I am licensed in the United States. I have worked in the United States for years. And most of you know that I am based in Canada. And the traditional insurance system is different. And, you know, I've helped hundreds and hundreds of OTs based in the U.S. But I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. So I reached out to my colleague who is up on the pod waiting patiently through this intro to talk to us. And we had a great conversation over DM. And then she agreed to come forward and bring her knowledge of this topic to all of you. I am so excited to bring forward Dr. Brenda Heineke. She's a DPT. She is the owner and founder of Revitalize Physical Therapy near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And she provides high quality women's health, physical therapy, and sports performance enhancement. Her passion is for helping women and athletes get better faster in order to live a healthy and active lifestyle for many, many years. In her free time, and I've seen this on Facebook, <laughs> Dr. Heineke enjoys motocross, cycling, tennis, snowmobiling, and hiking. I just saw her and her beautiful family over Facebook out doing some snowmobiling this weekend. She loves to take vacations in the mountains. I think that's probably where they were. And spending time outside with her husband and her kids. Listen to their names, Toby, Stella, and Mac. So cute. And her black lab. Let us welcome today... Brenda Heineke. Hi, Brenda. Hey, Trish. Thank you so much for being here. You know what we said before I pressed record, that you are the first physiotherapist we are having on the pod. I know. And I was like, boy, the pressure's on now. <laughs> well, you might not know this. I might have told you this, that we started the OTs Get Paid podcast and the mission really because we were not loving and I say we, I mean, I spearheaded it, but like the community wasn't really resonating with the entrepreneur marketing that we were seeing out there for rehab therapists. And it was mostly the physios who were taking the lead on that. There was like a high amount of testosterone <laughs> and a ton of pro marketing. Yes. You know, and I feel like it still very much is that way. There's maybe like two female PTs that are doing more of the coaching and mentoring and it's about it. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know what the stats were. I just knew what I was seeing. And I remember vividly tiptoeing around that when I was first starting out. Like I didn't want to call out against the physios and bro marketing. And then the more I learned about entrepreneurship and mission and mar movement marketing, I was like, oh, actually we better put like an eye and 
dot this I and cross that T. So we are wading into the world of bringing physios on the pod. And one of the reasons is we have heard from multiple listeners that they love hearing from people outside of what we say is the OT bubble. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us more about yourself. How do you get paid? I did a little intro, but tell me more about yourself and what you do exactly. Yeah. So I have, as you said, a women's health physical therapy clinic. Um, and we have two locations here and I have five other staff PTs and I have done a lot of work, especially in the last year to kind of start backing out a little bit more and really spending my time solely on the needle movers and trying my best to delegate off to my team and just getting the right people in the right spots so that all together as a team, we can keep growing and be successful. So that I would say is primarily where I get paid. I'm able to make a draw every month and get that in my bank account. Was that a weird switch for you? From going from like direct service equals money in your pocket to I actually am not going to be billable hours and somehow get paid? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I feel like it was, but a slightly different mindset. Not that like my time wasn't worth it. It was more so just trying to figure out that balance of bringing staff in and still being profitable. Whereas when you're on a smaller scale, it's a lot easier because you know it's just simple math. You see patients, you get paid. And now as a larger company, that's not the case. And so just learning how to manage that and learning how to deal with the financials and stuff is just a lot more complex, I feel like. Well, you are quite literally saying what I hear OT say on the daily, which is that shift from, I identify as a therapist who owns a business, not a CEO of a company that gets paid. And it sounds like you made that shift already. Yeah. I feel like definitely a mindset shift to be like CEO yeah. is a weird thing. That's a yeah. weird thing to think of, especially when you've gone to school to be a rehab professional and you're like, I know nothing about business. Yep. Exactly. Well, I'm so happy to hear it's like not just an OT thing. So the people who are listening feel like comfort that, you know, other rehab professionals are feeling the same way and it can be done. I know our group as a whole rejects that term CEO. They're like, even my 100K club mastermind, which is for people that are making 100,000 and above at gross, they're like, oh no, we refuse that title. We might take on owner. We might accept founder, but CEO, absolutely not. And it, it, is, it is a shift. It is a mindset shift. So tell me about the income and the impact goals you have for your company this year? Okay. So for this year, uh, 2023, my revenue goal is 1.5 million. We came up just shy of a million last year. I heard a statistic only 2% of female founders ever break a million. Yeah. Blows my mind. That blows yeah. my mind. I know. But we've kind of been on a very fast growth curve every year. Every year it has been 150 to 200% growth 
year over year. So that's kind of how I got my number. That's just how I've done my projections, I guess. And I'm also this year really focusing in on profit and increasing profit margin as well. That was a big goal last year because I've found that I've gotten in that trap as as we've grown, so do expenses. And how do you ever increase that profit if they're just always going up? So that's kind of my big goal in terms of money. And in terms of impact, we really are trying, our mission here is like changing how we do women's healthcare and really trying to make a more cohesive model of healthcare because there's so many things in the pelvic health realm that factor in for our patients in regards to nutrition, lifestyle, even kind of like high level exercise, things that maybe you're going to classify more as like wellness or maintenance. So really incorporating all of that into a plan of care for them to take them to a much higher level and have longer lasting success. Well, I know there's many, many, many OTs out there that are moving into women's pelvic health. And I hear from them again weekly. And one of the challenges is physios have a lock on this. How do we get in there? And and by the way, the secret is nobody has a lock on anything. <laughs> you, know? you just market yourself. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter if you're a physio or an OT, but for the same reasons that you're talking about, they want to make that revolution in women's healthcare and how it's how it's delivered. So I have a specific question about profit that I don't want to skip over. And then we're going to move into kind of the meat of talking about marketing and sales for private versus insurance. So I know that somebody out there is driving their car, listening to this podcast, and they're thinking to themselves, well, how do you grow in revenue while growing in profit? How do you keep an eye on those expenses? How do you grow that profit? Can you answer that simply? Yeah. And I actually feel like this took me a long time to learn. No one explained this to me. But it really is getting to a point that you have kind of the space. So you've got more exam rooms, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, and you have the staff. But at some point, you reach this tipping point where, Mm -hmm. say, you have someone at the front desk, you can just keep adding more patients in and at some point, your revenue outgrows your expenses. So you're able to um, increase that revenue without maybe always having to hire somebody. Mm -hmm. So you get to a point where you have enough staff that their capacity can like far surpass their expense basically on payroll. Mm -hmm. And I think the nice thing with rehab is we don't have a ton of really expensive equipment or overhead Mm -hmm. to do our jobs. And so that's a really nice aspect of it too, that you're not really increasing like your cost of supplies all that much Mm -hmm. with adding more patients. So I think it is getting... Hey, Trish. Yes, Ashley. As an OT entrepreneur who's just starting to make money, I bet you've thought, oh my gosh, I just got my first few clients. What the heck do I do now? 
don't worry. At Therabyte, we have you covered. We heard you and we created intake and consent templates just for you. So you've downloaded the template and now you can say, amazing, I know exactly how to get my client started. Oh, I wish I'd had this in the beginning. I pulled everything together and needed something this efficient. Okay, so where can listeners find these templates, Ashley? Super easy. The link will be in the show notes. You just hop over to our website, find templates, and you've got your download. Sounds great. And to that point that you have a large enough capacity mm-hmm. to offset that payroll expense. Does that lead to a productivity challenge with your team? Yeah, I actually feel like right now we're in this place where we, about a year ago, expanded one of our offices and doubled our space. And so now I have six exam rooms there and I have three PTs. So I still have the potential Mm. for adding three more PTs without increasing my rent, Mm. without needing to increase any kind of support staff. Mm -hmm. So if that, you know, basically everyone's maxed out, I add Mm -hmm. another PT there. If we max them out, what they're going to generate in revenue far outweighs their costs in terms of payroll. Great. Well, I know one of the reasons that OTs start businesses agency-based, service-based businesses like your own with team is they want more revenue and yet the people that they're attracting and themselves as the CEOs, as the owners, the founders, like push back against the traditional productivity standards that exist like massively I hear in the US. I mean, in Canada too, but do you find that that's something that you talk about with your team? Like you're not, you don't want to say, okay, you need like... 98% productivity. And if you don't hit it, like there's going to be consequences. How do you, how do you manage that balance between them being, I don't know if you use the word maxed out, tapped out. I can't remember. Sorry. I don't remember the exact word you used. And also not being like kind of representing the more traditional hospital productivity standard. Yeah. So here for sure, at least where we are, productivity is a huge thing, especially in the hospital networks. And they are, that's like their number one thing they focus on. And a lot of times it's just very unrealistic as I'm sure many people listening know. So I actually really don't look at productivity for my team. The numbers that I track more so, I do look at what's the percent capacity. So if they have 40 slots available for the week, what percent full? And really for us, 85% capacity is more ideal. I've found that when we get above that, our cancels start to go up. Mm -hmm. And so I actually would prefer to be kind of under that 90% mark, Mm -hmm. 85 to 90, and still have them available to help with other marketing tasks or things like that, or stay up on documentation, whatever that looks like. So I look at that, but the big ones that I track cancel rate is Mm -hmm. huge for us. And then their conversion. So whenever we have a new person come in, 
Mm-hmm. What is their conversion into a plan of care, especially being cash-based? I think that's a huge number to look at and track. And then drop-offs too. How many drop-offs are happening? Okay. I'm writing this down because I can't wait to talk about this. Okay. Let's move into the juice of it. And briefly, like we're going to put a pin, I wrote them down, cancel rate, conversion to plan of care and drop-offs. Because I know, again, somebody driving their car is like, oh my gosh, I need this information. And yet, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I want people to understand the percentage of insurance. So this is a long question. As an interview, I should ask shorter questions. And I don't because it's my podcast. (laughs) I haven't had anybody really complain. So here's what I want you to talk about before we dive into those things is that change, if you ever had it, like, did you start an insurance and then you moved to private pay? How did that all kind of come about? Because people are listening, thinking, well, you know, how much of this is private pay? And that's completely unachievable for me. Sure. So my business is seven years old and I started out slowly. I was still employed somewhere else and started out slowly building up a clientele, had just a one room office somewhere and it slowly evolved. And I started out cash-based. I knew going into it that I did not want to take insurance. I was working at a clinic that was insurance-based and just seeing a lot of the limitations. And it was so frustrating for me as a therapist to be like, I went to school all of these years. I spent all of this money and I can't even make the decisions of what is appropriate for a plan of care, what kind of treatment they need, what kind of treatment I should do day to day. And it just was a crappy feeling knowing that like, oh, I have you just riding the bike for 15 minutes because I'm double booked and I can't do two things at once. I'm not giving the best care. And ultimately like people aren't going to get better as quickly Mm -hmm. or even at all. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I didn't want to do that. And here in the Midwest, the Midwest, I feel like it's a little more conservative. So Mm -hmm. at the time there were, PTs that I knew of that were more like East Coast and West Coast that were doing cash practices. And not that it's like a brand new thing. Um, There's been people for a long time doing cash-based, but here in the Midwest, it just really was not very commonplace. There was like nobody in my area that was cash-based when I started. And so I had so many people tell me, that's a mistake. You need to take insurance. This will never work unless you bill insurance. Even I had like a business mentor, a business coach, and they all kind of said the same thing. And I was like, well, I'm going to try it anyways. Uh, I love this. I don't like to be told what to do. Um, (laughs) Hence the reason uh, for not taking insurance. But (laughs) I was like, worst case scenario, I can always start taking insurance. Like if this Mm -hmm. doesn't work and I can't figure this out, sure, I can go in network. But I think it's much more difficult to start insurance and then try to drop it and go cash. So that was kind of my motivating factor to like start out cash and see what happened basically. 
So, so at this point, like we're still 100% cash. Okay. There's so many things I love about this because you just were obstinate, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> You've got this like vibe about you, right? Like you talk way slower than I do and you're wearing like your Wisconsin baseball hat and you were like in the country with your dog this weekend. And yeah, you've got this like kind of chillish, you know, measured vibe about you. And then you say these things that are like <laughs> so bold in your like chill way, like, no, no one's going to tell me what to do. I love that, Brenda, which is like the voice that so many of us hear. Thank you for saying that out loud. <laughs> okay. So then how do you crack that code? Because I have known multiple, not a ton of my clients, but I've known a few colleagues who have wanted to start out, and they've actually been in the US too, taking private pay. And then after not getting enough people in the door, they go to insurance. Did you ever have a moment like that? To be honest, no, not really, because I knew what the insurance model looks like. And I also knew that reimbursement is getting worse and worse and worse. And like, I, I still like in my head think every day, like how are these clinics even staying afloat right now with reimbursement levels the way they are? I don't know. Like, I don't know how you, I I don't know how you think it's volume, 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 right? Even then, like I still try to like calculate this out and I'm like, how, but I mean, they are, but in my head, I was like, there's no way that this business is ever going to like be super profitable or make the money I want it to make mm-hmm. if I go that route. Mm-hmm. And it's not what I want to do in terms of care. And so it's always been like a motivator for me. And I feel like on times, you know, you ride the entrepreneur roller coaster, right? Like you have these highs and lows always. And there's times you get in these low seasons where you're kind of like, is this really worth it? And is this really what I want to do? My mind has never gone to let's start taking insurance because I've always been like, it's literally just going to be more headaches. Got it. I would probably rather like close up shop and just like, I don't know, find something else to do with my time Mm -hmm. than go to the insurance route. That is definitive. And I'm so glad to hear that was your line. You're non-negotiable. So then tell me in any way that you want to, because again, people are leaning in and saying, great, okay, so she cracked the private pay code. What's the private pay code? (laughs) So when things were in a slower season, rather than take insurance, what did you do to increase your traffic and your leads? And your customers. Yeah. I mean, I think it it almost depends on what stage of business you're in. Okay. So starting out, I feel like I put a lot of time and effort into trying to learn from some of these people that were doing cash-based. And it was like a whole new way of thinking about it. So for example, you're so used to just like, prescribing therapy, 
Like someone comes in with a problem, you're so used to like, yes, physical therapy, occupational therapy, like this is the answer to your problems. In cash-based, a lot of people, and this is, I mean, really just comes down to marketing. It's, you're not selling therapy, right? You're selling a solution and learning about what type of avatar, what type of like ideal client are you targeting? I feel like that's really important to hone in on initially because that changes how you speak to patients or leads that changes your messaging, even like your messaging on the website, on social, everything. So I think that's a really big piece of it. And then as you kind of get down that pathway, you hit these low points where maybe business isn't as busy as you want it to be. Then I think it's looking, if you've already like nailed down almost like the foundations, then it's kind of looking at how do we need to market what's working, what's not working, and what can we do more of? And, or even like, what can we try that's different? And starting to try to like think outside of the box, like always trying to move forward. Great. I've been writing stuff down. If anybody hears little tap, tap, taps or these pauses, it's because I'm like, oh, that's a good point. I want to get back to that. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, I want to make sure that's in a show note. Okay. So I love- Long-winded. No, gosh, we love long-winded around here. Have you met me? (laughs) (laughs) My sister, by the way, I've said this a few times, but I think it's really worth saying again because it's one of the funniest things my sister's ever said. (laughs) She says- why would Trish use 50 words when 500 words will do? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm a little verbose. Hence the podcast, okay. Brenda. <laughs> I'm one to talk in a big circle. <laughs> well, I, I certainly got a lot out of it. So let's circle back to some of it. You know what I love? I love that like OTs with our, you know, inferiority complex are, you know, not thinking we're as often as good as physios, or actually, quite frankly, we know we're as good as every other rehab person out there. And specifically for people that are in pelvic health, where it tends to be more physio dominated. This is what I keep saying to them as well. You're saying you're doing the same thing that I'm encouraging OTs to do to break into any realm. Because one of the questions we get again and again is, well, how do I market OT? I literally had somebody in my DMs say this yesterday. And I was like, you don't market OT, right? And I'm, I love that I want people to hear that Brenda isn't, quote unquote, resting on the PT part of it, right? That it's finding that solution. And for those of you who have been in the road to 100K, which is our program, our group coaching program for people that have made a couple of thousand to 99 gross, that's the first thing we work on, exactly that. And in fact, we're working on that in this current cohort right now. And then you're moving into the growth phase. And I want to ask you a few more questions about this because I think, you know, I call it the loop to 100K, Brenda, where you really have one job to get to 100K or to be open for five years. I think that's the other statistic. I should know it off the top of my tongue, but like X number of businesses close. Do you know what it is? I think it's like 50% of businesses fail in the first three or five years or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, I thought it might've even been higher, but yeah, it's, it's very high. So you have one job, which is like, you know, 
figure out your niche, figure out your offer, market it, get paid for it, deliver it, grab a testimonial. And that's the loop. Boink, 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 boink. So you essentially said the same thing. So if you're starting out, I don't want to get more complex than this. I want you to lean into what Brenda has said and that loop to 100K, which is like, you know, talk about the solution, talk about the solution, talk about the solution. That's how you're going to get people in the door. And in terms of the growth phase, we call that the feast and famine phase. Or people that are scaling, we call that the CEO with money to spare phase. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a pitch. We have a quiz on our website, which is in the podcast resources to help you determine what stage of business you're at and then the next steps you should be taking, which Brenda, unbeknownst to us, is actually confirming in the quiz. So thank you, Brenda. <laughs> Just set you up for that one. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Look at PTs and OTs living together in harmony. <laughs> Okay. How, let's get, can you give me a specific example of something in the growth phase for marketing for private pay that was working and something that was not working? Sure. So it's funny you say this too, actually, because like, as you were talking, I was thinking this, I have always had really great success on workshops, workshops and events. And it's just definitely a strength, I think, of ours here. It's always what I've done. Then during COVID, we stopped doing in-person events, tried to move them into virtual like everybody else in the world. And virtual events did not work for us. Like they just would not convert. Normally, like an in-person workshop for me, I have about a like 70 to 80% conversion on average my virtual workshops. Why don't we get really specific? Sorry to interrupt you. I no. actually need to listen with everybody's ear. I know what you're talking about, but I think there's people that are starting out that don't have that same vernacular about conversion. What does that mean exactly? Sure. Okay. So conversion for a workshop for me is like they came to the workshop and now they've converted over into a paying client. Okay. So you've taken them from, because we talk, I People actually said to me once, I sent out a survey to get feedback from the podcast. Yeah. And one of the comments I got was, you're too repetitive. Or, it was kind. It wasn't like junky. I'm just saying it quickly. And I was like, good. <laughs> because you and I both know, like, how many times have you read the same thing over and over and over and the penny finally drops? So to get specific about what I talk about all the time, it's traffic leads and customers. So do people come, do you consider people at the workshop traffic or are they already a lead? I count them as a lead okay. basically because, because they're already yeah yeah okay. they've already like raised their hand and said exactly. yeah I'm interested I have their contact info so Perfect. now I can follow up I right. count them as a lead I also do as a side note I don't do any free workshops I always charge like a paid small leads. paid yep. leads I'm all about it too so anywhere from like 15 to 25 dollars on average so even though, yes, they've already purchased, it's to me still a lead. And then, yeah, if they move forward and take whatever offer, normally I do like a consultation or we've been doing like a $97 public health assessment. If they move forward, take that, like that to me, I count as a conversion. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. So 
when you were saying like, just simplify it, keep it simple. You're starting out. It's so funny how like you forget some of that and like you get down this path and it's like all of a sudden you try to complicate things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I was definitely in that the last like six months of, you know, trying to figure out like, well, what is like our number one marketing thing? Like where, where do I need to focus? And it's going back to like what worked. So for us workshops and, you know, this year, that's a main focus for us in terms of what doesn't work or what hasn't worked well. Actually, I would probably say like bringing in organic leads off of our social media. For us, that is not a very large percentage of where our leads come from. I still think it's an important piece to have because I think it helps build trust and bridge that gap to get people to say yes or almost reinforce. That's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Reinforce their decision. But I don't think it's very small, the amount of people that we're getting that are like, oh yeah, I found you off Instagram or Facebook or whatever. So I guess that's something I would like to see do better. Cause I do know that there are a lot of therapists that that's their number one way of bringing people in. It just hasn't been ours. I'm not a huge proponent of having a social media strategy when you are on that road to hundred K. And I think once you have words that you've spoken about capacity, you're paying yourself, you know, you've got some systems, you're beginning to track the right data, then you can experiment with that new thing. So I'm in total agreement about that. And it didn't work a lot for my bricks and mortar. I just didn't find that. I think it's a long-term strategy. Yeah, like, I agree. With or you. Again, it's, I just think long-term, like I think getting a strong website with SEO, mm -hmm. I know I listened to a few of your podcast episodes and I know I listened to one on that. And I think getting in front of people, especially in the pelvic health realm, mm. is huge. Like, yeah. I just think it's, it builds trust and it helps educate because that's a big barrier in this yeah. niche. And it's, I think, one of the fastest ways to grow your business, kind of getting those connections and getting in front of people. Yeah, I agree. Well, and to reinforce, again, it's a simple concept. And again, I'm thinking of OTs that are coming in still frantic, right? Still feeling like an octopus that has to wear 75 hats and they wish they had eight more arms on top of it. And really, you've made it simple to say, oh, we saw what was working before or we see what is working. And that requires a CEO mentality. That's why, you know, I encourage people to make that identity shift. And we talk a lot in our programs about what is the data you need to be tracking, right? It's not number of followers on social media, <laughs> spoiler. It's like, yeah, what is the traffic to the lead conversion and the lead to the customer conversion? And what got you the biggest numbers in that? And I'm so glad that you reinforced that because it can be that simple. The other shortcut that I just gave somebody in the road to 100K last week was, well, how did you get your last five clients? And they were like, oh, well, from this doula. Actually, she's a public health person. And I said, okay, have you talked to the doula? They're like, no. <laughs> like, groovy. <laughs> Go. <laughs> and it's also part of that, like, 
where can you get in front of people on their customer journey? Right? Sure. So what makes the most sense to do? Uh, what were you calling it? Pelvic floors and cheese boards? Was that what it was? Um, wine pours and pelvic floors. Oh my God, that was so good. I loved that so much. So who were you doing that to? Was it like, how did you get the traffic to become a lead? So trying to kind of use a couple different approaches. So our mm -hmm. email list, mm -hmm. then I will typically run some paid traffic to it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, to the event? To the event, Facebook okay. and Instagram. And then depending on the event, I may or may not like try to bring in other businesses, like partner with them and kind of like cross promote or tap into their audience. It, it just depends on the large scale, I guess, scale of the event to be. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I love that you're, you're, you are still playing because there's a marketing piece that's about playing. You have to play around and see, but it's not like I'm going to create an online course or I'm also going to do in-person events. And then I'm also going to put a bunch of educational, you know, PDFs on my website. Like you're not going in that. You're you're playing around with the events, right? Mm -hmm. And you're playing with like where do we have them and what time and with whom. And so I think that makes it more focused and more strategic. And yet you still get to play with some variables. Yeah. I want to go back and ask some of those questions that I said we'd put a pin in because again, I know people in the growth phase want to know the answers to cancel rate conversion to plan of care and drop-offs that you're tracking. And then we'll move into rapid fire questions at the end. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay. So I love these metrics or these KPIs. I have done quite a bit of marketing for, you know, OTs get paid around KPIs and we have not nailed the messaging because nobody really super cares. <laughs> and I'm like, this is literally the coolest stuff ever. <laughs> I think once you recognize that the data be tells a story, then to me, what other data needs to be tracked? And that has a lot to do with the performance that you need to be tracking for people that are generating revenue for you, including people that are like just expenses, just expenses, quote unquote, right? Like a front desk or a custodian or whatever. So let's lean into kind of these three KPIs that you've looked at, cancellation rate. How do you, what is the KPI that you have for your company? It's not going to be the same for everybody. And how do you fix that? How do you increase the lack of cancellation? Yeah. So I think like almost going upstream a little bit first, mm -hmm. someone that I've worked with in the past would always talk about some research study on like, what are patients looking for from their doctor? And it was basically, they wanted an answer as to like what their problem is mm -hmm. to know that you could help them. Mm -hmm. And they wanted a plan, like what, mm -hmm does the plan look like moving forward to fix it? Like those three things, super simple. And a lot of times when there's a disconnect there, you start to see those issues popping up with some of these metrics. So for cancels, we have 
that's probably our weak spot here. So notoriously, our cancels have always been very high, like 30, 35%. And so over the last year, that was like one of my biggest focuses, like cancel rate. So we have our cancel rate down to about 20%. Sometimes it creeps up to 25, but my goal is to be 18%. And I think in this population with a lot of moms with kids and babies, infants getting out the door. Yep. I just think that your cancel rate's probably just going to be a little bit higher because Mm -hmm. demographic. So that's kind of like where we're at and what we do. I also, I think there's a big discrepancy on how people like actually count cancels. Okay. So for me, it is a cancel if they don't reschedule that appointment in the same week. Okay. So if they call on a Monday, but we can still get them in on Thursday. Great. I don't count it because ultimately it's like their plan of care hasn't changed. Yep. If they reschedule for the following week, it's a cancel. You've lost an appointment basically that week. So I think a lot of people, like someone was telling me their cancel rate was like, less than 4%. And I'm like, it's just not possible. That's yeah. And I'm like, how are you calculating this? And it was like, oh, well, people that like just call and cancel same day or like Mm -hmm. late cancel. I'm like, that's just not the same. So that's how I measure it. And then I think the biggest thing for trying to improve a cancel rate is going back to like the value So have you really instilled the value of your services for what they're looking for? I think a lot of times people will start to cancel when they're kind of like, well, I'm not really sure. Like, uh, is it that important? Or they start to feel better and now it's not as important to them because they're feeling better. I see that all the time. Yeah, all the, time. the kids not actually melting down in the grocery store anymore. They can actually get out with a clothed child and go do one errand, and then they're like, "Okay, great, we don't need to see you anymore." I'm like, "Didn't you want them to eat Easter dinner with your parents?" <laughs> like, we're still far from that. But that, yes, I, there's got to be a saying for that in the research. But that kind of first wave of relief. Yeah, yeah. So I like for us, it's really important. Your first very first visit, getting to the goal. What is their goal? And it's not your rehab goal. You're not like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to have whatever improvement on some outcome measure. They don't care about that. Like they want to have Easter dinner with their family. Like (laughs) (laughs) being able to differentiate that I've found is very difficult for certain people, but getting to that and reminding them like, where are we at progress wise towards that goal? And then like always setting them up. What is the plan for the next visit? Like, what are we going to do and work on? So why is it important that they come and make it to that appointment? Even if they're feeling better, it literally is setting those expectations of being like, you know, it's, normal that as you start to feel better, like you might even be tempted to cancel. But now is when we really put the work in and start to strengthen and solidify so that you're not having flare-ups and 
you know, we're getting you to these long, high level goals. So I think that's super important with cancels and drop-offs. I think they kind of go a little hand in hand. Great. And you have, I assume, taught your team how to do that. That's not you every single time. Right. Great. Right. Tell me about conversion to plan of care, because I don't hear that being spoken about a lot in the general OT population. And yet that's something we talk about. I use different wording, but that's something that we talk about a lot in the paid programs that we have. And I think it's key. How do you how do you get them from that initial because again, it's kind of like another paid lead is what you're saying. That first visit. Yeah, because yeah. they come in paid. We don't, I, we used to do free consults. We don't anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that first visit to then them agreeing and saying yes. And like moving on through that plan of care. I think that's actually probably the most important metric because if you are doing all this work or even spending money on marketing stuff, to get the leads in, but then they're not doing a plan of care. Like you're losing so much money. Like once they're here and in your door, it should be relatively easy to get them moving forward. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. they've already basically told you that they have this problem and they want your help with it. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the biggest things you can do to improve on that again is their goal. Like number one, if you don't know that answer and you don't like flat out ask them that answer, everything hinges on that. (laughs) And so that's top priority. And then being able to relate it back to that and relating the plan of care back to that. So a common mistake I see like our PTs do here or like new PTs that come on board they might get the goal, but then at the very end, they sit down and they're like, okay, well, you're going to need nine visits. And then that's it. And they're kind of like, okay, like, where did this come from? It's hard for that the client to feel, I guess, uh, to really buy in on that. So mm-hmm. I'm always like, you have to paint them a picture. What does the journey look like? you know, it's nine visits, but this is kind of the journey in terms of frequency that's going to happen over the course of time. These are the things we're working on to get you back to XYZ goal. I'm just really putting it in terms that they can understand. You know, I think it's important to show them some limitations too. It's like a fine balance. Like you don't want to be like, super negative and like, oh my God, look at all these like problems you've got. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh, great. But you also don't want to like sugarcoat it too much where they almost feel like their problem's not really a problem or it's not that important Mm -hmm. because I'm not kind of like, well, why do I need to pay you to come for this? Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in the middle. And I think I always have a few like tricks in my toolbox, if you want to call it that, to really get buy-in on an eval that shows them they can actually like see and feel that limitation and see how does that relate to their goals. So like, for example, since I'm in pelvic floor, 
you know, just telling them like, oh, your hip range of motion is limited. Great. Okay. Like, Why does that matter? But if I can actually like have them do a TA contraction and they can't do it and you're like, do you see how difficult this is? Or do you see how you can't hold this position or whatever? And they're like, oh yeah, that's really hard. Okay. Well, this relates to X, Y, Z. And they can actually see that because they can feel it versus like just telling them your range of motion is limited. It just doesn't correlate. So I think those are kind of like the three big ones that are important to have in that first visit to get the buy-in, to build trust and basically make the client feel like I'm in the right place. This person can help me. And I truly believe that like I'm going to get better with their care. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to give the OTs a bit of a pep talk. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me for one second while I move my attention from you, Brenda. Please, OTs, if you are listening, I hope some of you were actually like raising your voice to Brenda's comments and saying, yes, girl, because literally the things that Brenda is speaking about are things that we were trained to do. We are always looking at occupational performance issues. So we don't really, you know, talk a lot about range of motion and hips, although, you know, that's a important part of it. And yet we've been taught, like our assessments are all OP issue based, right? They're all occupational performance issue based. And then Brenda's talking about activity analysis, doing the analysis of the issues and how it relates to the activity you want to get them to. That's not just during treatment. It's also really important during this assessment period and also being incredibly client-centered. So this is my pep talk using OT language to say, you already know how to do this. It is very possible for you to do this with, you know, without a lot of extra training. You already know. I know this is how your brain works. So lean into that. Oh, thank you, Brenda. This was so good. Okay. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? All right. I'm ready. Okay. We've got a few and then we'll tell people how they can find you. What is your biggest personal money splurge? I actually just, just went and did this like a week ago. It was my goal when I would finally pay myself six figures I was going to reward myself and I feel like I've been working on that goal for a while now. Uh, And so I just bought a nice designer bag for way too much money. That is so exciting. But yes, I love it. Take with you snowmobiling. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. I took it to Target. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. How about your biggest business related I call it a splurge expense, however you want to clarify that. But something that feels like, oof, this is decadent. I wouldn't have typically spent this much money on this in my business. And I'm really glad I do. I have to be glad that I did. Uh, no, you can answer however you want. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna box you in, Brenda. <laughs> I would say probably the most expensive thing that I've purchased for the business, Pilates reformers. Those were pretty pricey. I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm so glad I did it because I don't feel like 
they really truly that break even cost is far out, but they are nice to have in the clinic and use with clients. So yes. Where do you have paid help in your life? I mean, I guess all of my staff. Yeah. <laughs> they all they all help uh, yep. in various ways. I also have a house cleaner that comes every couple of weeks. And then we do daycare for our kids, but soon to be, we're going to hire an au pair, oh, beautiful. Uh, a live-in nanny. So I think that'll actually help schedule-wise a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recently had a household assistant mm-hmm. that I lost. She was in PT school and I've been like hemming and hawing do I replace her? Like, can I do it without her? But what was- were her tasks? Because I've heard of that m- many times. In fact, Rachel Rogers is a big proponent of getting that assistant help in your home. What did they do for you? I had like a, I had a list that she did like every week. She was there once a week. She did all my kids' laundry. Mm. Um, we also we go out of town. Most weekends, we have a cabin up north. And so literally like repacking all the weekend bags for my kids, which sounds so bougie, but like... I remember those days. We had a cabin in in the mountains too. And I was was mainly working as a prof at that point. And if I never repack another kid's bag, it will be too soon. It's so much to do it every week. It's yeah, just a lot. That we did so, it too. It was just like a cycle. Oh my gosh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so should we do that? Um, basically sort the mail mm-hmm. and unbox any kind of like Amazon box that we had and kind of like put that stuff away. Those were like top priority things to get through. And then depending on like how much time was left, I'd have her work on then other project things. My thought is with the au pair, I can pass some of those tasks with the kids, like their laundry and the bags to an au pair, but I would love to get help like with my own laundry and even just like all of the little things around the house. Like, Oh, she would do donations. Like mm-hmm. I'd bag up stuff and she'd run it to Goodwill. So like a real yeah. house manager. Yeah. Now, I want to, this is not part of the rapid fire, but I want to lean into this a little bit because I know that this concept is still a challenge for a lot of OTs. What did you do with your time? Like, is that just because you're making scads of money and decide to like lay around and eat a bonbon, which would also be totally fine? Or is it like, how did you, what's the math you did to decide that that was worth it? Yeah, I feel like right now the setup that we have, we kind of, I'm still home with the kids like one or two days a week. And my husband is home with them one day a week. So my work, like, especially after having our third, my work hours really condensed into like three work days that I'm in the office, but now they're long work days. So I do like a 10 or 12 hour day. So like nothing really gets done on those days. And then when I'm home with them, it's just hard. We're like running them around. So I would say it's still very much a challenge of 
trying to balance that. Like my goal for this year is to kind of like cut back on those work hours and maybe have it a little more frequent if I can do shorter days or something to basically give more time for myself so like I can prioritize exercise or even like being able to just like get outside and go for a walk things like that like trying to prioritize my health this year is a main goal for me and I feel like that's still a work in progress even with all of this help I still feel like is very much a struggle. Well, and I can see where all those different roles, because we're occupational therapists, we think about occupational roles, they have a bigger priority other than being the house manager. So, you know, being a owner of a company and being a parent and parenting, not through managing house stuff, but like through activities, through spending time with the kids, you've elevated those things to being more important and being, you know, the house manager role is further down and self-care, right? Taking care of yourself because you can't show up as you want as a parent and you can't show up as you want as a worker bee without those things. And so, you know, one is trading time for time. <laughs> one is, sorry, one is spending money to buy back time, okay, with your fam, with your children, your young children. And the other is spending money to be able to make more money. Because the hours that you put in at work make way more than your assistant house manager. Great. I just wanted to do that math carefully so that people, as they're still ruminating on this idea, they can understand it. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question. This is my favorite. If I could wave my magic money wand and put seven figures into your business right now, what would you spend it on, Brenda? Boy, that is a hard question. Fun and question. I, and I can spend all of it? You can do whatever you want again. Oh my gosh. I mean, I would probably like the rational side of me would say <laughs> I would save some of it. <laughs> <laughs> COVID very much or depleted some of our reserves. And so still trying to build that up. So I would definitely put money there. I would probably upgrade some equipment, some like weight equipment. Uh, I feel like I have a pretty good team right now, but probably being able to like offer them more benefits would be nice or even more perks would be good. Hmm. Those are great answers. Oh, and I would buy high low tables for every exam room. Can you make some of those reformers into high low tables? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that we brought this chat out of the DMs and forward. And, you know, two themes resonated with me that are so on brand for what we talk about here at OTs Get Paid and what, you know, the people who follow. And that is, you talk about the money, you talk about it bluntly, you talk about it with ease, which is really important. I'm here to break down that stereotype and taboo for OTs. And that care is at the heart of what you do. And I love that balance. So people that are listening, you know, you're very conscious that your mission and your value is to make healthcare better for women. And also 
you set assertive money goals and you want to pay yourself X and you, you know, purchased yourself a luxury item, et cetera. And I'm just thrilled because I think so many OTs think once we start talking, we just have to talk about the care, the care, the care, and we can't talk about the money. And you've done both so beautifully here. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was super nice. You're welcome. We will have um, links to your website in our show notes. And thank you for, again, being our first physio. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. This has been OTs Get Paid, recorded live in Studio C. That's Studio Closet. I'm Trish Williams. If you had feedback on today's episode, send us a DM on IG at OTs Get Paid or join our Facebook group at OTs Get Paid. We would really love to hear from you. We'd also love it if you could subscribe and write a review for the podcast. Each month, I'll pick a random review for a shout out to get your name and business on the air. Until next time. <laughs>